Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews this morning. We're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 10. As we think about, as we continue our series in the five solas of the Reformation, five principles that guided the Reformers 500 years ago, leading to this movement of God sweeping across the world, restoring understanding of the gospel, that we would understand what salvation is, and that salvation is in Christ alone. And as you know from the series that we're going through, we're calling this a call to a reformation, a call to a new reformation, a movement of God's Spirit among us to bring renewal, to bring revival, to bring a work in our own lives, in the life of our church, in the churches throughout this community, and indeed throughout the world. Because the reality is, is that we are constantly in need of renewal. We are constantly in need of the work of the Spirit in our lives, renewing us, transforming us, and continuing to shape us to be more like Christ. Because the reality is that we live in a world that is constantly at war with the things of God. We live as sinners in that world that struggle still with sin in our own lives. And so the reality is that we are constantly in this need of renewal and reformation in our lives. And so today we come to the principle of solus Christus, by Christ alone. So far we have dealt with the principle of sola scripture, scripture alone that we stand on, knowing the truth of God's word. And that sola scriptura teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it issues forth to the glory of God alone. And so this, as we gather here today, we come to to remember and think about what is perhaps the most central aspect of these solas, and that is that it is Christ alone. Indeed, this was in reality the part of the driving question of the Reformation. Is salvation by the work of Christ alone? Or is salvation by what Christ did plus what we do? Is it what Christ did on the cross that accomplishes what is required for salvation? Or is it Christ plus the things that we do, plus the grace that we get through the Lord's Supper, as the Catholic Church would have taught? Is it through the efforts that we give? Is it through the meritorious works that we give? The Protestant Reformation looks at that, looks at Scripture, and cries out, salvation is in Christ alone by the work that he did alone, because the only thing that we bring to salvation is what we need salvation for, and that is our sin. And so Christ alone is the cry of the Reformation, and in a very real sense, it is the cry that we need to have today. All of Scripture points to the reality that everything centers on Christ. From before the foundation of the world, it was the Father's plan to send the Son to bear the punishment for sin for all the world. 
It's from before the foundation of the world that God planned and purposed for Christ to die on the cross. And from the beginning of the Old Testament, we look and we see that it was God's purpose. Because he said that, that there would be one who would come to crush the head of Satan. And everything in the Old Testament pointed toward the day when the Son would come and die for our sins. At the fullness of time, as Galatians tells us, Christ came and Christ died. And so now, from that point forward, everything in history, all of time now anticipates, looks to the point where Christ will return, where Christ will split the skies, he will come back, the dead in Christ will rise, we who are alive will join with him and reign with him forever in eternity with Christ. This is the central truth of all of Scripture. It is Christ alone Church, I want you to hear this. If we are seeking renewal in our lives, if we are seeking God to do a work of restoration, renewal, revival in our lives and in our church and in this community by his work, it comes to center on how we respond to Christ. So the question I want to ask you this morning as we look at Hebrews 10 is one simple question. How will you respond to Christ? Not how did you respond to Christ 10 years ago. Not how did you respond to Christ 5 years ago. But how do you respond to Christ right now? How will you respond to the truth that we see as we read through Hebrews 10 as the writer of Hebrews calls us to look at the once for all sacrifice of Christ? My question is, how will you respond to Christ this morning? So as you take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, as we look at this passage, what we see is that Hebrews 10 is the culmination of everything that the writer of Hebrews has been getting across. This is almost like a sermon that he has written, and he has written this to a church that is struggling. A church that is walking through difficulties, a church that has experienced Some persecution, not to the point of shedding of blood, but to the point where they are walking through difficulty. They're walking through the challenges of this world and the pain and the suffering and the sin that we experience in this world. And it's come to the point that some of the people are starting to turn away and they're considering abandoning the faith and turning back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews takes the whole of this letter and he builds this case for Christ. And he's showing over and over again that Christ is better than everything else. Christ is better than the old covenant. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than anything that any priest could do. Christ is superior because he has offered the superior once for all sacrifice. And in Hebrews 10, we get to the culmination of everything that the writer of Hebrews has been writing. And so I want you to pick up with me as we consider Christ alone in Hebrews 10. And as we ask ourselves the question, how will we respond to Christ today? How will we respond to Christ today? As we pick up with Hebrews chapter 10, the first thing we notice the author showing us is that human effort cannot make us right with God. Hear the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, 
make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? The writer of Hebrews points out that if there was a possibility for humans to make themselves right with God, it would have come by the law. It would have come through the sacrificial system because it was God who gave the law and the law was a good thing. It was God who gave the sacrificial system and the sacrificial system was a good thing. You remember that God gave those things to Israel when they went into the promised land. And so if there's any hope, if there's any possibility of any person being able to do something, contribute something that will make them right with God, it would have been through the law. However, the writer of Hebrews tells us this. Listen to verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the effort that we give, anything that we might do to be able to take away sins. And that includes the sacrifices that were made. You see, the human tendency is to think that something we do will make us acceptable in the eyes of God. This is what we see throughout the history of Israel, that God had given them the sacrificial system as a means to point them to their need for a Savior. But so often what they did was that they took those sacrifices and made them into a rote series of rituals that they would do. That they would do these things, and by doing them, they would assume that this would make me right with God. But God later says that he hates, he despises their sacrifices because they come just from hearts that try to appease God by doing something. When we look at the Reformation, much of the Reformation is a reaction against the idea that we do something to contribute to our salvation. You remember what was going on during this time period that the the Catholic Church was teaching that it is by what you do adds to your salvation. So that if you will do these meritorious acts like taking communion, if you will do a certain amount of penance, if you will hold to these relics, if you will walk up these steps and bow down and pray on each step, this will add some extra grace to you that will contribute to your salvation. And the Reformation is a cry against this saying, no, it is not that anything that we can do. It is only by God's work through Christ that salvation can come. But the reality is that that human nature 3,000 years ago with Israel, that human nature 500 years ago in the Reformation is no different today. The natural tendency of the human heart is to say, I can do something to make myself acceptable to God. I need to do something to make myself right with God. But hear this. It is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats or the work of your hands, or anything that you do for you to make yourself right with God. It is more possible that I will flap my arms, fly up into the sky, fly to the sun, and swim around on the sun safely than it is for you to do anything to make yourself right with God. Because the reality is is that we are more sinful than we understand, and God is holier than we can conceptualize. Our sins are more serious and more damning than we can understand. And God's holiness is brighter and more blazing and more pure and true than anything our minds could ever 
wrap themselves around. It is impossible for us to do anything to make ourselves right with God. But the human tendency, the human tendency is to think that we can do something. Because we downplay our sin. We downplay our sin. We call half lies. We call lies half truths or jokes. We consider our anger excusable. We polish our sin to make it palatable. But God's holiness, God's holiness is so true and pure that there is nothing that man can do, nothing that man can do to overcome sin. We are incapable of making ourselves right with God. But what we could not do, Christ did. What we could not do in and of ourselves in making ourselves right, Christ did because Christ accomplished salvation. Take your Bibles and look again. Let's pick up at verse 5 and hear what this says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world. Now, this is just a simple little statement, but I don't want you to overlook what is happening here. I don't want you to miss how big it is to say when Christ came into the world. Don't let that statement pass you by. Because what that statement is saying is that God took on flesh, came to earth to those who hate him, to those who sinned against him, to provide a way for them to have salvation. So what this is saying here is that God had planned, God had purposed for Christ to come to make a way for salvation. And so we are seeing here that Christ came into the world so that the hopeless people could have hope by Christ making a way. Listen to what it says sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. These, these in and of themselves cannot do anything. You going through the ritual of offering sacrifices, they cannot save. Verse seven, 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll. Animal sacrifices could not make man right. Efforts of man could not make man right with God. But the God-man can take away and deal with sin forever. Verse 8. When he had said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because it was completed. The work was done waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ became the sacrifice for sin because animals could never cover and deal with sin. Because, hear this, an animal is incapable of bearing and taking away sin against an infinitely holy God. You could sacrifice an animal every second for the next million years, and it would never be enough to cover one sin against an infinitely holy God. From now until Christ comes back, you can make every possible effort, and your effort would never be enough to cover 
one sin against an infinitely holy God. The only hope for sinners who have sinned against God is if God himself makes the way for salvation. The point that the author makes here is that Christ has done that. He has fulfilled everything that God requires. Everything that God says that you and I must be, Christ has fulfilled in that. God says for us to be in his presence, we must be holy as he is holy. We are totally unholy, totally not right with him. But what Christ did was he lived the perfect life that we could not live. And so when Christ lived that perfect life, Scripture says that God imputes that to those who are his. So that he credits righteousness to our account. So that when God looks at us, he looks not at the sin that we have, but the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because it has been credited to our account by the perfect life of Christ. What we could not do, Christ did. And the same thing with taking away our sins. You and I could not bear the punishment for sin unless we stay in hell forever. That is what the punishment for sin is. Uh, it should be against a holy God. The only way that our sin could be dealt with is if God himself takes the punishment for that. And so this is the point of Christ on the cross, being the great high priest, dying on the cross, bearing the punishment that only he could take in that moment. So often we think about the cross and we think about the physical pain that Christ experienced. We think about the physical pain of the nails. We think about the physical pain of the thorns. We think about the physical pain of the beatings that he experienced. But the fullness of the pain, the fullness of what Christ experienced was not just the physical pain. The fullness of what Christ experienced was the wrath of God poured out on him at that moment because of my sin. The fullness of everything, of the anguish that happened, was Christ taking my place to experience the wrath that I deserve. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement, that Christ took the place, took the place of those of us who trust in him, took the place of us so that he might experience what we deserve. This is what we celebrate and remember today, that Christ died for us. Now we sing about this so much, And we talk about it so much, and we see it at Easter, and we talk about it at Christmas, and it's in our songs, and it's in our sermons, and it's in our Sunday school lessons. That sometimes we can hear the words that Christ died for us, and we can move on to the next thought. I don't want us to do that. I don't want us to hear the reality, Christ died for us, and then move on. I want you to stop. I want you to stop for just a second, and I want you to remember your sin. I want you to remember the reality of what Christ died for, the the depth of our sin and how hopeless we are apart from Christ. And now I want you to fix your gaze on Christ. I want you to think of the reality of Christ on the cross Bearing what you deserve. Because the point that the writer of Hebrews is giving us here 
is that when we get this, when we keep this in our minds, when this drives us, it affects everything. It drives us, it changes us, it moves us, it renews us, it brings about the reformation that we need in our lives by remembering the reality of Christ having died for us. Listen to verse 14. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By his offering on the cross, by the death that he made, by, by his death there on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Not meaning that we are perfect right now, but meaning that God looking at his children sees them as perfect. God looking at believers sees them as those who have been justified, made right with him, be, uh, declared right holding the righteousness of Christ, being clothed in that, so that he sees us as if we are perfect in Christ. Christ's sacrifice is so complete that what verse 17 says should astound us. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Christ's death, his sacrifice is so complete That what he did took the wrath so completely that it says here that God remembers their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Not not an idea that God forgets. God is not like us where he forgets where he puts his keys. God's not like us where we forget that we were supposed to pay a bill. God's not like us where we look at somebody we've known for 20 years and can't bring the name to uh, to our minds. That's not the forgetfulness that this is talking about. When it says here that God does not remember their sins anymore. The idea is that God does not remember their sins against them anymore. So all the sins that we have committed, God does not hold against us anymore. So all those things that we have done, all those things that we continue to do, God does not hold against us. So hear this, church. If you are in Christ, everything that you have committed in the past, everything that you sin now, all the sin struggles you will have in the future, Christ has borne on the cross. So that every evil thought, every angry word, all ungodly speech held against you no more. Every sinful deed, every act of worldliness, Every lust of the flesh, every impure desire, that sin that you could not possibly admit to anybody else that you hope will stay hidden for eternity. God has dealt with fully with Christ on the cross so that we bear it no more. It is not held against us. This is good news for us, that Christ has borne it on our behalf because we could never do it ourselves. So where there is, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. It's paid for by Christ. It's dealt with on the cross. We bear it no more. And so church, this is what we come together for today. This is what we remember today, Christ bearing this punishment that we could never bear on our own. And so the point here as we're talking about this is that this is something that drives us to the new reformation that we're thinking about. This is something that drives us to renewal and to restoration and to revival in our lives when we remember this truth. Because I think if we're just honest with ourselves, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll look at ourselves and we see we are constantly in need of some kind of renewal. We walk through pain and difficulty. We struggle with sin. We live in a world that is constantly pulling us away from Christ. We have an enemy that is opposed to us as 
called a roaring lion that's prowling around seeking to devour us. And so I think if we're really honest, we look at our lives, we see how the busyness of life consumes us. We see how our prayers grow cold sometimes. We see how our faith is weak. We see how that sin that we struggle with seems to keep popping up. We see all these things with the reality of life in this fallen world. And sometimes there's a coldness in our lives that we know shouldn't be there. I am convinced that remembering Christ alone is a key to our restoration, our reformation, our renewal, the revival that we so often, so desperately need. You know why I think that's absolutely the case? Because that's what the writer of Hebrew does. The writer of Hebrews takes this church that's struggling, walking in sin, walking in persecution, and he says, look to Christ. This is how you overcome and move past this. You cling to Christ. You hold firm to him. And that's exactly what he points them to because in the next section that we're going to read, he gives them three areas of response, three ways of renewal, three avenues of response leading to renewal. And it all centers on what do you do with Christ. And so quickly, I just want you to see in verses 19 through 25 how he points us three to three ways of response. And these are the three ways of response I want to point you to this morning of how we respond to the, to the truth of Christ. Listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, picking up verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our hope and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's doing here is he's giving us three areas of response that we'll see here. How we draw near to God, how we cling to Christ, and then how we, uh, how we uh, encourage one another in Christ. And so he starts off with here the simple command to draw near to God. And so everything that he's doing in verses 19 through 22 is he's building, he's piling over and over again all the things that Christ has done. And so he says, since we have this confidence, since Christ has done this, enabling us to enter through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since Christ has done what we could not do ourselves, in the end of verse 22, uh, since we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, these are images of cleansing. This is Old Testament imagery that points to what Christ has accomplished and saying since we have experienced all this now let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith so i want you to think about this for just a second everything the author is doing here writing and pointing to what christ has accomplished and he says the response is to draw near to god so think about this for just a moment the god who created the universe says, draw near to him. The God against whom we sinned, says, draw near to him. The God whom we are called enemies of, says, draw near to him. The God over all of creation says his desire is to be near to us. Do we realize the depth of what that means? That in response 
to what we see about Christ doing what we could not do. The author of Hebrews says, draw near to God. Draw near to Him. And so maybe you look at your life today and you see some spiritual coldness. Maybe you look at your life and you see some deadness that has crept in. Maybe you look at your life and you see the prayer does not have the vibrancy that it once did. Maybe you look at your life and see weakness in your time in the Word. And, the, and you look and see, I don't know how I got here. What the writer of Hebrews does is call us to say, look to Christ. Look to Christ, because when you look to Christ and remember what he has done, you remember the work of the cross, it causes you to draw near to God. So if you find yourself in that place of renewal where you're needing that, do exactly what he says here. Draw near to God. Go into your prayer closet and hide in there and spend time pouring out before the Lord. Go to the Word and take it and dig in and read and study and let the Word renew you. Draw near to God. This is the response remembering what Christ has done. Second response that we have mentioned here in verse 23 says, let us cling to the hope of Christ. Hear what the word says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope here refers to to the hope that we have of Christ paying the penalty, of Christ bearing everything for us. Remember what the, the church that was experiencing that that this letter is written to, they were experiencing persecution. They were tempted to turn away. And so the hope that the writer turns them to is the same hope that has strengthened Christians for 2,000 years. The hope of Christ and what Christ has accomplished. About 300 or 464 years ago, during the Reformation, there was a a man in in England named Lawrence Sanders He was a Protestant preacher. He was convinced that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by any works that we do. Contrary to Catholic doctrine, he taught that the Lord's Supper is not something that gives us grace and merit, but is something that is a picture of what Christ has done. He taught that the gospel is true and that there is only way to salvation, and that is through Christ and Christ alone, not by what we do. So on Sunday, October the 15th, 1553, 464 years to this day, while he was preaching in his church, he was arrested for preaching the gospel. For 15 months, Lawrence Sanders was kept in prison. And then on February the 8th, 1555, he was finally led from his prison to be burned at the stake. When he stood at the stake where he was going to be burned, he was given one last opportunity to recant. One a- one last opportunity to say that, yes, okay, it's Christ's death plus the works that I need to do. Here's how he responded. The blessed gospel of Christ is what I hold. That do I believe. That have I taught. That will I never revoke. Flame was lit, and he died. What is it that would cause Lawrence Sanders to cling to Christ in the face of burning to death? What is it that would cause Christians for 2,000 years to be unflinching and unswerving in the face of the worst persecution? It's knowing that Christ paid it all, that gave them the strength and courage to stand firm and cling to Christ. 
David Platt said, your perspective of earthly embers changes when you remember that you've been saved from an eternal inferno. I don't know what you're experiencing right now. I don't know the hurt, the struggle, the pain. I don't know the coldness, the deadness, or the vibrancy in your heart. But what I do know is that knowing and remembering what Christ did causes us to cling to Christ unswervingly no matter what we face. So the response of Christ, renewal that we're seeking, you hold firm to Christ. And the last one is that we stir one another up. Listen to verses 24 and 25. Let us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. So I find this is an interesting way that the writer points us to. We thought about the death of Christ, what he accomplished. He told us to draw near to God. That makes sense. He told us that we are to cling to Christ. That makes sense. And now he tells us that we are to look to each other and stir one another up. Because I think there's a picture. There's a picture that keeps coming in my mind when I think about this passage. It's the picture of a group of coals. You've seen what a group of coals are like when you've lit them and they're grouped together in a bunch that they burn this red hot color. What happens if you start pulling those coals apart and you start separating them, they get a little farther apart? The flame begins to die, doesn't it? It doesn't take much time before those coals begin to grow cool. See, I think there are two things that are going on here. First, we were created for Christian community, not just for being lone rangers. And second, one of the means that God has ordained for us to persevere, to draw near to God, and to be all that he has called us to be is through our relationship with one another clinging to Christ as we fan into flame one another. And so the picture that we get here is these believers who are renewed in Christ by what Christ has done, remembering that. And so as they're renewed in Christ, they fan into flame those who are around them. And those who are fanned into flame, fan into flame others who are around them. And we see this spreading of this fire for the Lord, this passion, this renewal in ministry and in life and following after the Lord that happens because they fan into flame one another. And so the question that we ask ourselves as we look at this is how do we do this? Are we intentionally, when we come together, not just coming together to attend and to be here, but doing what verse 24 says, considering how we stir up one another? So I ask you that question. Are you considering how you stir one another up when you gather here, when you come to Sunday school, when you do the other things where we gather together as a body? What we are considering, what we are considering as we look at this passage and we think about a call to a new reformation, we're considering how do we, how do we find renewal, how do we find revival, and so much of what we say is it comes through affirming these things, but specifically today, of how we respond to Christ. Christ accomplished what we could not do. Christ bore the wrath that we could never bear on our own. Christ leads us to these avenues of renewal, of drawing near to God, clinging to hope to Christ, and stirring up one another. And so my question this morning is just very simply, how will you respond to Christ? How will you respond to Christ this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy. We ask, God, for your gracious work in our lives. We ask, God, that you will fix our eyes on Christ, our Savior. 
fix our eyes on the only one in which we have hope. I pray, God, that as we consider that this morning, if there is any deadness and coldness of heart, I pray you'll fix our eyes on Christ, that we might be renewed in Christ. If there are any in here who do not know you, I ask, Lord, that you will work in their hearts now to see that there is only hope in Christ. Father, move and work in us as we think about Christ alone today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.